This podcast is available in video at fpcgolfport.org and fpcgolfport on YouTube. Upon an infant's birth, upon an individual's birth, a child's birth, a baby's birth, would you say that the individual, the baby, the child comes into this world good, neutral, or depraved? In other words, do babies and children come into this world with any sort of moral condition previously affixed, previously applied? And if so, what is that condition? Well, it may or may not surprise you to know that this is a topic of a lot of dispute. In the history of the church, this has been a topic that there's been a great deal of contention over from the first few councils on through. Not everyone has agreed to what the answer to that question is. See, when Christians or theologians look at this, when they consider a child, maybe a child has been born or maybe even a child in the womb, when they consider a small child, many have concluded that such a child, as they look at it, such a child is wondrous and innocent and perfect and righteous and all of these things right from get-go, that initially the child's perfect. It's after the fact that the child does something wrong and thereafter becomes a sinner. That's one school of thought. Others would say, well, a child's not necessarily perfect when the child is born. It's not necessarily righteous when a child is born, but it's definitely not wicked either. Definitely not depraved. What some folks would say is that such a child, when a child comes into this world, is born in a state of moral neutrality, a free agent, a clean slate. And then again, it's only after the fact, through the child's own volition, later on, that the child may sin and become a sinner. Now, the third school of thought echoes what David said. Psalm 51, in sin, my mother conceived me. The third school of thought is this, that children come into this world already predisposed towards sin. In a sense, every child comes into this world already tainted and marked and affected with a sinful DNA, a sinful nature. Now, the fact that not everyone agrees, whether perhaps even in this room, not everyone necessarily agrees on these things, and the fact that certainly across all the churches and all the church history that not everyone has seen eye to eye on this, that might leave you and I to think, well, this must be one of those things that Scripture really doesn't talk about. The fact that there's so much disagreement over this might lead you and I to think that, well, it must be an area that's ambiguous in Scripture, that God just simply hasn't given us any real clear answers, and therefore we're entitled and able to figure things out on our own. We might think Scripture really doesn't speak to the matter because there's so much debate about it. Well, here's the thing. I don't think that Scripture has been unclear on this in the least. I don't think Scripture has been unclear on this in the slightest, as we'll see in a few moments. I think Scripture is as clear on this doctrine as it is on any doctrine of which it speaks. It's as clear on this matter as it is on anything. The problem we have is that we're not inclined to like what it says. I believe the truth is that man comes into this world in the condition of what is called original sin, affected from the ground up. But the reason that is so hard for us to warm to is because it is so undesirable a conclusion. You and I have all held a, a cute, wonderful baby in your arms, right? You look down when they're first born, oh, it's so wonderful, how cute. And you see something that looks unspoiled, untainted. You look, see something that's innocent. Of course, one temper tantrum later, you know different. <laughs> Nevertheless, we're inclined to look at babies in the crib and say, oh, this is perfection, this is righteous, this is good. It's only later that the child's going to get soiled, but initially they come in so wonderful and so innocent and so pure. And yet, in sin my mother conceived me, David said. And yet, Scripture speaks of a topic that we call original sin or total depravity. 
Now, if you go to a baby shower, that's not words you'll want to bandy about. You won't be the most popular person at the shower. And yet, the reality, theologically speaking, if we're being honest with this text, if we're being honest with Scripture, the reality is that we come to this world with a problem. We come in with a sinful nature. We might not like it. We might even tend to deny it. But in order to deny it, you also have to deny Romans 5. You also have to deny what God's Word overtly declares, as we will see in a moment. If you would, please look with me, page uh, 3 of your bulletin, I believe. I'm going to reread verse 12, then we'll work our way through the rest of the passage as time permits. Romans 5, verse 12, says this, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. Back in the fourth century. There was a man named Augustine, a wonderful man, a wonderful theologian named Augustine, a man who's been championed about by the church for centuries. He was the dominant theologian of his age. Now, Augustine, although he was the dominant theologian of his age, that didn't mean everyone agreed with him. There was one guy in particular, one guy who, along with his followers, rejected much of Augustine's teachings. His name was Pelagius. Pelagius. Now, Pelagius and and Augustine, again, they were not buddies, they didn't hang out. They weren't uh, together on much or anything. They had different views on a lot of topics. But the principal area that Augustine and Pelagius disagreed on is today's topic, Roman 5's topic, that deals with the matters of original sin. Now, before we continue any further, what is original sin? We can say it. We can think of it. We've heard it in times past. But what is it? What are we talking about when we use the term original sin? Well, in one sense, it's not terribly hard to figure out. In one sense, original sin suggests that at some time in the past, there must have been a first sin. At some time, there was a first sin that occurred, the original sin. And yet, an understanding of the doctrine of original sin suggests that that sin, that first one, became the root of all other sins. That that sin didn't just occur in a vacuum, but it became the root of all other sins and all the hurt and depravity and death that we see outside these doors. That there was a first sin that was the root of all other sins. And furthermore, there was a first sin whose consequences have extended not just to the guy who committed it, but to every last man, woman, and child. That's the doctrine of original sin. And in a sense, without using that exact term, it's what Paul's talking about. In verse 12, he says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, Just as through one man sin entered. He's talking about the original sin. Just through one man sin entered the world, death, death spread to all men because all sinned. One man sinned. The consequences of that sin was death. That death has been applied to every last man and woman child since the first man. Adam's saying that because one man sinned, the consequences of that sin are imputed to all men. Now remember that word imputed because it's going to be the most important word that we are going to talk about in this morning's text. Now, who was? Who was the first man? Who was the man who sinned? Who was it? Adam. Okay. Now what did he do? Well, Adam, as you remember, as the story goes, he was in the garden and he ate from the one tree that he'd been told not to eat. See, Adam had been given dominion. Adam and Eve, our first parents, had been given dominion of creation, dominion of the garden. They could name the animals and the fish and the flora and the fauna, all these things. They were in charge. What a great opportunity they had. Free reign of the garden. God just set them loose and said, enjoy. And yet God told them something else. He said, enjoy all of that, but there is there's one thing. There's one tree. See the tree in the middle of the garden? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil? That tree, 
that tree you shall not eat of. For the moment that you do so, you, you shall die. This was the first man, and as the story goes, as Scripture tells us, Adam did the one thing he wasn't supposed to do. Adam and Eve, they ate. They ate of the tree. And as a result of eating of the tree, sin, death, and the consequences thereof entered the picture. Now, let's think back to Augustine and Pelagius for a moment. Augustine and Pelagius, they both would have agreed to the statement that Adam sinned. These men, for all that they disagreed about, they would have agreed that Adam sinned. They would have said, Adam done messed up. They would have agreed about that. But they would have disagreed over the effect that sin had. They would have disagreed of the effect and the consequences of sin. You see, Pelagius thought that, okay, Adam sinned. Well, naughty, naughty Adam. He shouldn't have done that. And so Adam will pay the consequences for his own sin. That Adam's consequences were solely reserved for Adam for the sin that he solely did. But he would say that there's no effect that passes on from that point. Pelagius would have said that all Adam did was give us a bad example. That there's no ramifications to you and I beyond that. That he set a bad example, an example that we all seem to be following. But Augustine said something entirely different. Augustine said that when Adam sinned, when he ate from the tree, the one tree that he was not to do, when he ate from this tree, it changed his nature. It changed what you might call his spiritual DNA. The ontology of Adam became different. His nature and the nature of his progeny, which includes you and I, also became different, and it became different in this regard, that we are now all subject to sin and death. That there were consequences, not just to Adam, but to all the ancestors of Adam, to the point that every man, woman, and child bears the scarlet mark of a decision of sin committed so long ago. Now, at face value, again, some of us, we don't like that. And the reason why is because it's no fun to be held accountable for something that someone else did. It's no fun to be held accountable, to be held responsible, to stand before God marked by the choices of another man. And yet, you know what the irony is? That's exactly what the gospel is. Standing before God, marked by the work, the righteousness of someone other than ourselves. And we'll see that in a moment. All right, let's look at verses 12 through 14. Verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin... Again, this is unambiguous. It's not hidden in the dust jacket of Scripture. It is right here, and you'll see Paul will say the same thing in a manifold ways across all his epistles. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Again, imputed is going to be a key word. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even though over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who didn't necessarily all eat from the apple, so to speak. Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. If you would... That again, that is a dense piece of text. Let me use an anecdote to help unpack it. If you would, imagine a man, a man standing on a cliff. Imagine he's a young man. He's standing on a cliff. He's a young man. Maybe he's been recently married. He's looking out down below. There's you know, the rocks down below in the valley. But he looks out at the horizon. Everything's so bright. He's got to wear shades. Things are looking good for this guy as he is standing on the cliff. Now, theoretically, theoretically, as bright as the future as this man has... He could go on, and he might, through his wife, they might have children in the years yet before. They might have children, they might have grandchildren, even further down the road. Generations after the fact, it's possible this one man would become the seed by which there might be even a great multitude. However, 
However, in that moment, as a man stands on the cliff, in that moment as he stands on the cliff, this much is for sure. If that man at that moment was to trip or slip or fall down to the rocks below, be dashed upon the rocks in that moment, the future of all those potential children and grandchildren would end with him. That would be the end. In a sense, what we're saying is that such a man, such a man is representative through his actions and choices of the fate and future and fortune of a progeny that does not yet exist and which he does not even yet know. In a sense, their future is bound to his choice or his action in that moment. It's in a sense the same is true with a man that we know as Adam. See, when Adam sinned, it was the spiritual equivalent of diving off the cliff. It was the spiritual equivalent of being dashed upon the rocks. Why? Because death entered in. The effect of that one decision would haunt and mark Adam, but it would also haunt and mark his progeny. All those descendants and ancestors and children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and like thereafter. Now, in Reformed theology, we call this concept federalism. We say that Adam is our federal head. He's our representative in the garden. He is our federal head in the garden. In a sense, he represented all of us, which is proven out by the fact that we're affected by his choices thereafter. Now, is federalism fair? Is this fair that you and I are marked by the sin of someone other than ourselves, especially someone so long ago? Is that fair? Well, at some level, at some level, you know, we think, well, no. I don't want to be marked by the sin of someone else. Someone else blew it. Why is it on me? Why do I pay the price because someone else did that? We don't like that. We don't think we should be condemned, consigned to death because of some choice someone else made, as if we would have done anything different. But we don't like that. We don't think it's fair. Pelagius, remember Augustine and Pelagius? Pelagius didn't think it was fair. He said, this is nonsense. This is silly. Why am I held responsible for something someone else did? He couldn't get past that stumbling block. It didn't matter what Scripture said. Scripture says it clearly. Scripture does not hide it. Again, it's not in the dust jacket or an annex of the book. It is clear here. It's clear. And yet, Pelagius, he didn't like it. And so he rejected it. How much good theology gets set aside because people just don't like it? A lot. A lot, and I think that's true with this. But again, there's a great irony here. There's a tremendous irony. The irony is this. The people who reject or who get upset about having Adam as our federal head, as our representative in the garden, those who get upset at the idea that Adam's sin is imputed down to us, none of those same people gets upset over the imputation of Jesus Christ's righteousness thereafter. Everyone hates the first, but we tend to love and accept and long for the second. The entire Christian faith is built upon the idea that one man's sacrifice saved us. We call it the gospel. We say we have a problem. We are sinners and the wages of sin is death. We recognize that problem. We need a savior. We need someone to reconcile us with God. The entire Christian faith is based on this premise that through faith in Christ, his righteousness is granted to us. His works are imputed to us. That when we stand before God, we wear his white robe. That is something everyone tends to accept, to nod their head to and say, yes, amen. We see that as good. If the Christian faith is based on the idea that one man's sacrifice saves us, so why in the world should it be a stretch for anyone to see that one man's sin could also condemn us? Paul says exactly this. One man's sin condemns, but one man's righteousness saves. Your future, 
Whether you like it or not, whether you desire it or not, is predicated on a relationship with one or two guys, Adam or Jesus. Your forehead, spiritually speaking, is tattooed with one of those names even now. Which is it? All right, let's look at verses 15 through 17 to consider that further. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the offense. In other words, the gift that we get through the gospel is much better than what happened. It's much stronger and much more significant. The free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense, this is Adam, for if by one man's offense many died, he did something wrong, sin entered in, death came with it, and all of us are therefore marked unto that same end. And the fact that we have gray hair and joints that don't work and the like is evidence and proof of that enough. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from the one offense resulted in condemnation. But, but, the free gift which comes from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Your forehead is marked by one of two names, Adam or Christ, the first Adam or the second. Now, a few moments ago, we said that one of the most important doctrines in all of Christianity is the doctrine of imputation. For some of us who might not have spent more than five minutes ever thinking about that word, but I tell you it is the most important term. One of the, probably the two most important terms in all of Christianity. I think propitiation is the other one. And yet imputation is very significant. Now imputation, what does this suggest? Imputation suggests that one man's works or actions or deeds or consequences, that one man's actions can be applied to you. Imputation is this idea that one man's credits, spiritually speaking, can be placed upon another. What Adam passed down, what he imputed to you and me and everyone in this room, everyone in the world around us, can be summed up in one word. Death. That's the legacy of Adam. That's the legacy, if you look at Paul's letters. Through one man's offense, many died. This is the legacy of the first man. He broke the one law that he was told not to break, did the one thing God told him not to do, and as a result of this, more people died than just him. Sin and death spread. We come into this world marked by the consequences that befell Adam. Now this is imputation in its worst possible form. But immediately after explaining that, Paul adds this encouraging thought in verse 15. He says that although the one man's offense brought death, although that's true, Paul, again, he doesn't sugarcoat it. Although he says through one man we died, through one man's offense brought death, he says the good news of the gospel is this, that through another man, a better man, a second Adam, through this man's gift, we have been given life. One man's gift was death, or one man's legacy is death, the other man's gift is life. For by the one man's offense, death reigned through the one, Adam. Much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Now, I think that you and I are are probably, if I was to ask us uh, to define some terms, if I was to say, all right, let's talk about sin. If I was to say, give me an example of sin, I think we would in no time at all, we'd be able to to write down a whole whole list. If we were asked to explain or define sin, we'd, we'd get that. Why? Because we are very accomplished sinners. This is something we know a lot about. And so if we were asked to talk about it, we probably could. However, what if the word was not sin? What if the word was righteousness? 
Not the words of righteousness. If someone asked you right now, explain righteousness to me, what would you say? You know, as a side note in Christian circles, I have a lot of folks who talk to me about how uh, they're growing spiritually. They want to be more spiritual and, and the like. You ever hear that phrase? People talk about spirituality. I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. They talk about spirituality. Very seldom, if ever, has anyone ever come to me and asked me, how do I become more righteous? People want to become more spiritual. But righteousness, we don't know what to do with. So what is righteousness? Well, when Adam was first created, when he was in the garden, he had a perfectly right standing with God. Adam was blameless, absolutely blameless. He had a close relationship with God. He was in the garden, which is a type of heaven. He was what you'd call righteous. He was blameless in the eyes of God. That is a hint of sin, scandal, or iniquity. However, his ability to remain in that condition was based on his fulfillment of something that the theologians call the covenant of works. Specifically, there was one work, one thing that he was told not to do. God set Adam and Eve loose in the garden, said, Of that one tree thou shalt not eat of it. For the moment you do so, you shall die. Okay, this is the covenant of works. It's based, his right standing with God is based on his fulfillment of this covenant, of doing what the covenant required of him, which was not to eat of the one tree. And yet, the first time the serpent slithers in, which was more cunning than all the beasts of the field, the first moment of temptation, first Eve and then Adam, they fell. The covenant, his ability to stand with God, to stand in God's presence, his righteousness hinged on one simple thing, obedience to this one law that God had given him. And if he had done so, if he'd kept that law, if he'd done what he was supposed to do, everything would have gone along swimmingly, so to speak. But again, we see that he didn't. Genesis 3 tells us that in time, it was potentially in fairly short order, but in time, Adam chose, chose the fruit, he chose disobedience over obedience, and as a result, sin entered in, and it stayed, and its scarlet tendrils spread. Its scarlet tendrils spread, and everything changed. It wasn't just Adam and Eve, the consequences of them. The whole created realm, you could say, fell, which is why all of creation now groans for redemption. It's why now there's pandemics. It's why now there's earthquakes and hurricanes and all the other things that we don't like in the world around us as a result of the fall. The fall's consequences, one sin was that bad. Oh, my stars. When we think of our sins... Remember this, one sin, which was functionally eating a piece of fruit, was enough to throw the entire universe, the entire created realm into chaos. Sin is that bad, and God is that holy. Those are two things we can learn from the fall. Now, you can reject this idea that the fall had implications and consequences that you and I are under today. You can reject it because you don't want it, you don't like it, and the like. You can reject it. And yet, if you do, you have tough questions that you have to answer. If sin weren't natural to us, as some think it's not, as Pelagius didn't believe, if sin wasn't natural to us, if it wasn't part of our DNA even coming to the world, if sin isn't natural to us, then why are we all sinners? Why is every last man, woman, and child a sinner? If death doesn't reign as it did from the moment Adam ate, if death isn't natural to our condition, then tell me why do all die? There's a Baptist preacher, his name is Paul Washer, some of you might be familiar with him. He uses a a specific antidote, a specific example that I've I've always really appreciated in order to teach this point. This point of uh, what we call original sin, this point that man has been affected from from the womb, from the point of conception forward. In order to demonstrate to people that we are affected through the fall, he uses this um, this anecdote. What he does is, he talks about a watch. He says, all right. 
you take off a watch, and let's say you were to approach a, a baby in a crib, and you take that, that watch and you, and you dangle it over the child. Well, the child's going to look at that watch and be entertained, mesmerized, maybe even reach out and touch it. You know, it sparkles, it's shiny. And for a little while, you're having a good time too. You're dangling it. Oh, coochie coo. You know, you're having a great time with, with the baby and the like, and the baby's playing with it and so forth. Well, then what happens? Well, because you're an adult, you get bored of dangling watches. And before too long, you say, well, that's, that's enough, that's enough, good time is had by all, and you take your watch and you slide it back on the wrist. Now as you do so, and as it clicks shut, the child realizes what's going on. You've taken something away. You've taken that watch away, and the child reaches out to it, perhaps even tries to claw at your wrist a little bit, try to get that, and you say, oh no, 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 playtime's over, and they keep trying to get, to get the watch. Why? Because they want it. It's shiny and it's sparkly, they like it, they've been entertained by it, and when you take it away, a child will often, maybe not always, but is often going to get angry, upset, cry, temper tantrum, reach out. You took something away that the child wanted. Try to rip right off your hand. If you leave your hand extended, we'll try to rip the watch right off your wrist in order to make it their own. Well, this pastor, he suggests this. He says that if in that moment when the child is having a temper tantrum, trying to rip the, the watch off your hand, if in that moment the child had the strength of a full-grown man who would knock you off or rip off your arm to get to that watch, that, that original sin. That is total depravity. That's this picture that we come into this world. We come into this world predisposed to doing that which we ought not. If sin isn't natural to an infant's nature, then why do we even infants sin? And, and those of us who've been parents know that they do. If sin isn't natural, why do even children sin? If it wasn't natural, if death isn't natural, then why do, why do children die? Even in the womb. If it's not a natural part of our condition. The answer, the hard answer and the convicting answer is what Paul's been saying all along, at least in today's text. He says that the reason children sin, the reason you sin, the reason I sin is because we're sinners. The condition, the condition of sin precedes the action of sinning. You understand that? The condition of sin precedes and anticipates the action of of sinning. It's not the other way around. And if you miss that, if you get that wrong, you will get almost every other part of soteriology wrong as well. There's another pastor who once put it this way. He said, if you're wrong about the fall, you'll be wrong about it all. All right, let's build on that point by looking at our final verses, verses 18 and 19. Verse 18, therefore, so he's coming to a conclusion, therefore, as through one man's offense, that man is Adam, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, not just to him, not just to some, not just to the naughty people, but to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so, through one man's righteous act, and it's capital M if you're reading the New King James, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men. Man, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. If you have that in front of you, if you're making notes in your Bible, the word to circle is the word made. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. This is not to say that through one man's disobedience, many saw a bad example that they later on followed. It says something different. It says, through one man's disobedience, men were made sinners. This speaks to ontology. This speaks to their nature. This speaks to how they're formed. It speaks to babies coming out of the womb in this way. Now, we've talked a bit about Adam. Let's look to wrap up with our remaining time by talking about Christ. See, Adam, Adam's legacy, again, it's sin and death. I'm sure he was a perfectly sweet man in a lot of regards, and yet his legacy to us is heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking because it's law-breaking. 
Adam broke the laws of one greater than himself. And yet the legacy of Christ, which he gives to us, our heritage that we receive from Christ through faith is that of his obedience. Paul says, one man was disobedient. We pay the price. But through faith, through faith in Christ's obedience, we are made as righteous as he was. There's an imputation we don't like, the imputation of Adam. There's an imputation we desperately need, and that of Christ's own righteousness. You know, Adam, as you think back, I don't know how long it took him to sin. But we know this, that it appears the devil slithered in. The devil was more cunning than all the beasts of the field he comes in. And it doesn't seem like it took long. He threw out one, he threw out one temptation to Eve and, and uh, subsequently to Adam. said, if you eat the fruit, everything isn't going to go so bad. God's, he's hiding from you something that you really would benefit from. He said, half God said, did God really say you couldn't eat from this tree? He says, actually, if you do, if you try it out, you'll find that the fruit is good. Oh, it's, it's something else. You'll also find that by eating it, you'll become like God. You'll know good and evil. Now, that sounded appealing to Adam and Eve. That, well, this sounds great. You mean God's been holding back? Whoa, mind blown. Give me the fruit. Partake it with this idea that they can know everything that God knows. That was the temptation. It could be like God. That's the root of all temptation. But that was the case there. So one point of temptation, he slithers in, you know, whispers a few words in their ears. The next thing you know, they gave in apparently immediately thereafter. Jesus, different outcome. Jesus tempted repeatedly. Remember Matthew 4 is tempted out in the wilderness on multiple points. He's tempted multiple times by the same serpent, by the same devil. He's tempted and, and yet, whereas Adam was disobedient, Christ was not. Christ was obedient. He did what he was called to do. And this idea of imputation, again, it has a negative context by which Adam's sin is imputed to us, but imputation is also wonderful because Christ's obedience, his righteousness is granted to we who believe. So when you and I stand before God, in one sense you could say, well, I'm a sinner in God's eyes. Well, in a sense, that's true. You have sinned. And yet, when God looks at you as his child, he sees you clad in what's sometimes called an alien righteousness, a white robe of righteousness belonging to someone else that's been granted to you. You don't like the imputation of Adam, I get it, I don't like it either. But I love the imputation of Jesus Christ and his white robe. But both are true. Both are in the book. And yet it's the imputation of Christ that lingers gracefully over us this morning. All right, again, in wrapping up this morning, all men, as we've said, are inexorably tied to one of two men, Adam or Jesus. You can pretend it's otherwise. You can pretend that your life hasn't been affected by the sins of Adam uh, any more so than the sins of your parents or grandparents or the like. Pretending won't make it so. On the day of judgment, Scripture declares to us that our relationship hinges on either the first Adam or the second Adam. Our relationship with God the Father hinges on a relationship either to Adam or to Christ. So the question this morning for you and I is which one is it going to be? Which one is it going to be? I hope and trust and pray that we've already come to terms with this at some time in the past. Perhaps not everyone in the sound of my voice has. So the question is, which one is it going to be? Which legacy do you want when you stand before God on that day? Whose imputation do you want to be marked by? That of Adam, whose legacy is death, or that of Christ, whose legacy is righteousness? Now, on the day of judgment, the word imputation, I tell you, it'll either be the most comforting word or thought in your mind at that moment or it will be the most damning. You know, some of us, again, we haven't spent more than five minutes in our life thinking about that word imputation, but I guarantee you at that moment, whether it's the word or the principle behind it, at that moment on the day of judgment, it will be either the most comforting word in the world or the most condemning. We will either continue 
before God's eyes to bear the scarlet stain of Adam's imputed guilt, which we have added to immeasurably through our own sins, or we will stand before God clad in the white robe of his son's own righteousness. Which one? Which one do you want? Which one are you wearing now? If you haven't already, today is the day. Turn to Christ and live. Let's pray. If you'd like to check out additional recordings or videos by Dr. Toby Holt, please visit our website at fpcgulfport.org. And if you're on the Gulf Coast, come join us at 11 a.m. Sundays at First Presbyterian Church of Gulfport, Mississippi. 